We are getting ready for the Easter season. I'm excited about that. And uh, as we do, we are walking into a series. So the last few weeks, we have done kind of one-offs talking about values. We're going to come back later in the year, keep walking through values all year long. But we are jumping into a series right now uh, that I've called Missing Easter. And the point of, uh, of this series, <laughs> reward it found, I love that, right? Missing Easter. And the idea behind this is that historically, the event of the death resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the most important events in the history of the world. And there are some people that historically we know were involved in the story, many of whom should have been having a trained eye to see what was happening around them. And the entire story unfolds and they missed it. They missed it. Isn't it interesting that we can, we can have a heart and intention to, to pay attention to something, we really wanna catch it, we really wanna see it, and then we get distracted and we miss it and we're so frustrated. I was thinking about that and this funny video came to mind, so uh, indulge my sense of humor here for a moment and take a look at this lady missing something that she's been really waiting to see. <laughs> I couldn't resist. <laughs> wah, 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 wah. <laughs> Oh, so backstory that I read about that is they were out there waiting all day for that, uh, for that about two-second uh, moment, and she missed it. So moral of the story, I don't know. Don't bring your dog on something that's important, <clears throat> but <laughs> really, really funny. So as we walk into this tension of missing Easter, there is, a, uh, there is an underlying theme in most of the individuals that we're going to talk about. I hesitate because I, I, I instinctively want to call them characters, but sometimes we say characters and we're talking about people who didn't live historically. They're just ideas or, of people, concepts, and stories. But these are individuals who lived, who historically were there and present in the moment, yet they missed the story of Easter as it unfolded around them. This morning, I'm going to tell you um, three just short stories from my life, uh, uh, interactions with me and my dad as I learned what it was like to try to trust Jesus, even though distractions were all around. And I had the opportunity in that tension to either keep my eyes, come on now, on Jesus or not. So uh, the first story, <clears throat> it's 1994. I am a... Uh, stunningly good-looking and in-shape, uh, full head of hair version of myself. I've, uh, <laughs> I've come to a relationship with Jesus in the uh, summer of 93. Uh, by about the uh, midway point of 1994, my relationship with Jesus is a real thing for me. Uh, I have locked in and said, this is who I am and, and I really believe. So in 1994, our little youth group, which was uh, just kind of a startup youth group, was excited to go on its first ever missions trip. Now, if you have been around here for a while, we've done some short-term missions stuff. We're actually working on a 20, where's Charlie at? Is it a 2017 or 2018? 2018, because it was all booked out. We had to go that far out. 2018, we're going to take a trip <clears throat> to, uh, to Mexico and, uh, and hopefully build a house and do some cool work there. Um, so 1994 is the first time I ever did something like that and had an opportunity. And uh, as, a, as a baby Christian, it was an unimaginably exciting moment to think about taking intentional time to go somewhere else in the world and share my faith with people who didn't know Jesus. Problem is, those events are expensive, and I'm a high schooler, 
And, uh, and so my father, uh, my stepdad, who was my dad since I was nine months old, I call him my dad, uh, he was of the mentality that everything I did besides eat and uh, have a place to sleep was a privilege. So if I wanted those privileges, privileges are things you earn. Now, I didn't have a good track record of earning privileges up to this point. <laughs> and so I am believing that I am a new creation, that with God's help, I can change. Uh, my behavior is not, I'm not who I used to be. Come on now, I'm a new creation. And uh, we have this opportunity to do this trip and I really wanna go. So I go to my dad. And I remember I'm sitting in the truck with him in the cab of the truck. And I said, dad, I think I'm going to go on this missions trip. Guess what he says? How much is it? Right? That's what he cares about. The number was high at the time. It was like 450 or something. Something that was in a, a big number for a 14-year-old to raise who had no history of investing in that kind of way. And he looks at me and he says, you're not going. No conversation, no debate. He did a dollar amount assessment, looked me in the eye and said, you're not going. Now, I shared time to time about my dad, um, some of his struggles. He's an alcoholic and uh, I call him a caholic because he was a workaholic or an alcoholic or just a whatever thing was the thing at the time. He was a caholic. And at this point he was an alcoholic and, uh, and I was pretty afraid of him. He's a big dude, 6'2", about almost 300 pounds. And, and uh, like I said, I was, you know, in very good shape, but I was little. <laughs> uh, I'm maybe a buck 40 at this time, buck 50. And I remember the fear that went into my heart because the first time in my whole life, I believed in a God and I believed that God had something for me and someone else didn't believe in that for me. And I didn't know how to answer, but I know I couldn't be silent. Now I was pretty compliant because I didn't like violence because uh, it was always pointed at me. So I usually, if my dad said something, that was just kind of the law. And if I didn't do it, it was a workaround in a way that was secret and he would never know. Getting to Mexico without him knowing presented some challenges. <laughs> so for the first time in my young life, I'm 14. He's been my dad since I was nine months old. I look him in the eye and I say, that's not going to work. And you should have seen the temperature like a thermometer begin to go in as the red kind of shot up his cheeks. And I braced for impact because <clears throat> that was not abnormal. And he looks at me and goes, what did you say to me? Now, I knew from about my less than a year of being a Christian that there was a passage in the Bible that said, God would give you what you need to say in the moments that you have those. And that's all I knew, right? <laughs> so I was like, oh, God, give me what to say. And so somewhere from my core, I just blurted out, if God wants me to go and he provides, are you really going to tell me no? Come on, I grew like three chest hairs, ping. <laughs> they were the first three, it was awesome. And something happened in that cab of my truck. He looked at me and he said, get out. But I didn't get whacked. And I went in the house and sweat was flowing down my face. And within a week, he looked at me and said, you know what, if you raise all the money, you can go. So, that was the first time <clears throat> I can remember walking through that. We all struggle to trust God. We all struggle on that journey in our lives. We all struggle with that tension because essentially we like to be in control. We look at this book and it has all these outlines, all these principles of things, ways we should live, ways we should manage our time. 
Ways we should manage our finances, ways we should manage our family, ways we should manage our personal disciplines. We look at this book and it seems loaded with things that God says, hey, trust me in this and see if I don't. But then we live in the real world. And in the real world, we meet opposition to the things God asks us to do in the scripture. And we have to make conscious decisions regularly about who are we going to be. Sometimes we have to ask hard questions like, do we really believe God will have our back if we trust him? Do we really believe that God will have our back if we trust him? And that's hard. If you've been a follower of Jesus for any length of time, you know that sometimes people look at people who follow Jesus who struggle with this idea of trusting God on how we should live and struggle with that. And they look at people who are followers of Jesus and they say, hey, you know what? You guys are hypocrites. You're hypocrites. You know how I know you're hypocrites? I know you're hypocrites because I see in your book that you say you live by that you're supposed to be generous and you're not generous. I see in your book that you're supposed to be loving to your enemies. And when I see you, I don't see you loving your enemies. I see in your book that you're supposed to entertain strangers and you don't entertain strangers. I see in your book that you're supposed to live connected and integrated and, and, and be part of a body. And I look at you and you're isolated and you're out and you're apart. And we feel the tension of those eyes looking at us, trying to do that. And we're like, hey, we're just trying to figure this out. It's funny because we say things like, well, yeah, we want to do what the Bible says, but we also, you know, we also need to, you know, make sure we have these other things also in life. And we live in the tension of trying to manage our lives and manage that tension of the world and seeing the world, judging for that. So the reality is we like to be in control. I'm a control guy. I can admit it. I want to know that everything's going to work out. And the way I do that is I make sure if I can't count on you, you're not part of the process, right? Because who I can count on is me. I enjoy being in control. I hope you uh, uh, at, at some level wrestle through that too. But there's something about when it comes to God that he brings us to a place where we have to decide between trust and control. So what is trust? <laughs> You'll never throw me up like that. Trust is, I believe God is who he says he is and that he'll do what he says he will do. It's my working definition of trust for you. How do you trust God? Trust is, I believe not only is God who he says he is, but that he'll do what he says he'll do. Well, how do we know who God says he is and what he'll do? Well, he tells us. He tells us. So trust is when we get into God's word and we see things like he says he'll never leave us or forsake us. And we say that's who he says he is. And I believe that's what he'll do. Trust is we get to the words of Jesus. And he says, why are you worrying? Your heavenly father knows what you need. And we say, I hear you. And I believe you. That's trust. Control looks a little bit more like this. I still believe God is who he says he is. But in case he doesn't do what I want, I got this. It's jumping out of the ship of faith with a parachute that has your name on it that says, hey, I believe, sure, I believe God can, but in case he doesn't, here's my plan B, here's my plan C, here's my plan D, and I got all these options that are now dependent on me. 
It's the difference between trust and control. Here's the problem. When we're working to control our lives, we can often miss what God is doing. Just like my lady and her uh, puppy dog. When we're working to control our lives, we can often miss what God is doing. So let me take you into the Easter story. If you have your Bibles, I'll be in John chapter 11 in just a few minutes. You can get there and jump ahead of me towards the end of the chapter, verse 45. But in the Easter story, there are a ton of religious people and individuals who interact with Jesus. And most of them are struggling with the same problem that we struggle with. They're working to control their destiny, their lives, to secure their position, to secure the things they need here on earth. And in the midst of working to control all of those things, they miss what God is doing. I want to introduce you to someone, you may recognize his name, you may not, who really epitomizes this in the story. I'm going to give you the history of a man named Caiaphas. Caiaphas. We're going to meet Caiaphas in John chapter 11. He's going to show up again in John chapter 8, and then we're going to see him once more in Acts uh, after the death and resurrection of Jesus. But Caiaphas has an interesting history. What's funny is if you look through history, there's a couple of individuals who are really, really important at the time of Jesus. But they have become essentially footnotes in history. The reason that they're famous today is not because of the position they held at that time, though it should have been because of that. The reason that they're famous today is because they intersected with a greater story, the story of Jesus. So many of you know Herod. We talked about Herod at Christmas time. We talked about Herod, who was the king of the Jews when Jesus was born. Herod's history is kind of easy to find out because Herod interacted with some of the major players in history. Julius Caesar, Mark Anthony, Cleopatra. He interacted with Rome in that season and was in power in uh, Jerusalem during that season. Herod was someone who had established positional authority in Israel and Judea at that time. And so when he hears about Jesus and the coming of Jesus, he pulls a power play to secure his position. And if you remember the story, his power play is to wipe out all the children, all the boys under the age of two, to make sure that no future king is born on his watch. His goal is to kill Jesus, but he fails. Now, Caiaphas enters in the story at the end of Jesus's life. He's also in a position of power. He is the high priest at the time of Jesus. As a matter of fact, not only is he the high priest, he's been the high priest for 19 years. Now, this is a big deal. Why is this a big deal? Because in the Old Testament, if you look at the Bible and you look at the story of the high priest, they were all from the tribe of Aaron. They all had the same lineage. They were all priests and they would once a year come and they would cast lots. They would throw these stones and whoever the lots fell to, that person was the high priest for that year. So a high priest job was a one-year job. So when we get into the text, you're gonna see oftentimes John refers to him as the high priest that year. Because in theory, he should have had a one-year job. But I just told you Caiaphas had a 19-year job. So how did he pull off what should have been a one-year position of power and get, come on now, no term limits? How did he do that? 
Well, because fast forward from Old Testament to New Testament, and there's a new big daddy in town, and it's Rome. And Rome doesn't let you pick your leaders the way you can pick your leaders when you're independent. Rome wants leaders who are loyal to Rome. So Caiaphas rises to power after his father-in-law had been a high priest for 10 years. Again, shouldn't have been able to do that. At the end of that 10-year run, he was less loyal to Rome than Rome would like. So his name was Annas. Annas gets fired from the job, immediately puts his son in charge, gets fired, puts his other son in charge, gets fired, puts his other son in charge, gets fired. Nepotism has never worked. After three sons get fired, because Rome's not having anyone in that, they, that you pick, only who they pick, he manages to get Caiaphas in the job. Caiaphas, like I said, holds down the job for 19 years because he's a politician in a pastor's job. He's the high priest, but he's connected and working with Rome. Does that make sense? He's willing to play ball. So that's who Caiaphas is. Joseph Caiaphas is his name. He was the high priest, and he was supposed to be in the world of worship, but he had become a politician. Now, what's interesting about Herod and Caiaphas is both were at the top of their games, at the top of their fields. One was a king. One was the high priest. The high priest was the highest position you could have in Jewish culture. You controlled the temple, and the temple was the center of their life. All of the income and the tithe flowed through the temple. Forgiveness was purchased at the temple. So sitting at the top of that was a very lofty perch to hold down for 19 years. <laughs> An interesting thought I had as I was looking at this was, it was just fascinating to me to be at this high priest level. Why would God, maybe this is just a different sidetrack, but why would God allow someone who clearly, clearly wasn't submitted to him to rise that high into a position of power? Why would he allow someone? And I was struck by this truth that God has moved from the very beginning through whoever he places at the top of position of power, whether that person is submitted to God, whether that person is defiant towards God, whether that person only plays lip service to God. It has made no difference in the kingdom of heaven for some 5,000 years of history. God still sits on the throne. Sometimes we hit panic mode over who's sitting on the top, come on now, of our political spectrum, of our church spectrum, of whatever that spectrum is, yet God continues to move through history, through whoever he places at the top. Now, Caiaphas had the same reaction that Herod had when he finds out about Jesus. This fool's got to go. Now, Jesus isn't a two-year-old baby at this point. He's 30. So the strategy has to change. Caiaphas isn't the king, he's the high priest, but he's a politician and he's networked with Rome. Now, the last thing I got to tell you about Caiaphas is the high priest at that time, they were a group called the Sadducees. So if you read your Bible, you know, there was two political parties that were preeminent. There were three, but there were two powerhouse, you know, political parties at that time, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Those were the two. And they met at a place called the Sanhedrin, which was Congress, Okay. And the high priest had the majority vote. So the Sadducees had the stronger vote. There's about 70 people who are 
appointed, elected to kind of govern the faith principles of that time. And the Sadducees have the majority vote. That's important for you to, to know as you get into the story. So suddenly, after some 15 years of being at the top of his game, being the high priest, this upstart Jewish man named Jesus comes onto the scene. Now, at first, he's not a big deal. There were lots of faith people and leaders who were out there. But Caiaphas has the temple. It doesn't matter who you follow in your local congregation. Everything in Jewish culture and life flowed through the temple. Yet suddenly, here's this man, in his eyes, Jesus. And he's going through the town to town, and his message isn't, Line up with the temple. His message is, follow me. As a matter of fact, many of his statements are shots at the religious ruling class. He literally uses language like, you brood of vipers, when dealing with them. Now, initially, this still isn't that big a deal. Because what's 12 guys? Total impact. But suddenly, something about Jesus starts drawing larger and larger and larger crowds. Now, the, the typical move is to send the other political party in to deal with this. So the Pharisees are out in force attempting to kind of quell the momentum that is Jesus. Now, the thing about the Pharisees and, and their particular lane, they were Sticklers to the word of God, but they also believe that not just the word of God was important. They believe the oral tradition of the Jewish leaders was just as important as the word of God. So they would constantly argue with Jesus about his behavior and the things that he would say, but they would constantly argue from a position that held authority to oral tradition over just authority to the word of God. And they kept losing all these debates that they enter into with Jesus. So you can imagine the high priest, Caiaphas, and his folks saying, what is wrong with these Pharisees? Every time they go to battle with Jesus, they lose. They leave with mud on their face, you big disgrace, right? He's kicking their can all over the place. Three years. It's been fun. You read through the story, and Jesus is like just wiping the floors with these guys. But we never see Caiaphas enter into the story until John chapter 11. Because something incredible happens in John chapter 11 that is a game changer with Jesus. If you're in John chapter 11, look up to the top of the chapter and look at what story we're talking about before this moment. Because in John chapter 11, Jesus does something that rocks the political world. It rocks the relational world. It rocks the known world. He walks over to his friend who's on the other side of a tomb named Lazarus and says, get up. Everyone's like, he stinketh. He's like, get out. And out of a grave walks a living man. Now, this is a game changer. Because if someone is raising the dead, they get to be in charge now. Right? 
They now suddenly, if if someone over here is saying, hey, you shouldn't do that, and someone over here is like, hey, get up and get out of the grave, which person has more influence? The guy who's calling people out of the grave. This is a giant shift in power and influence in the minds of Caiaphas. Now, I have to tell you something else about the Sadducees. Their political party, you know, every, every time there's, there's a, politicians get in the middle of things, they just have to land on different a- ends of the spectrum for whatever reason, just so they have things to fight about. Sometimes they're important, sometimes they're not. But come on, we just know that's part of culture. 2,000 years ago was that way. It's the same today. So one of the things that the Sadducees and the Pharisees fought like cat and dogs about was the idea of an afterlife. For the Sadducees, they believed, now they were strict adherents to the Torah, to the first five books of the Bible, and they were not accepting any new data after that. So no oral tradition, no presence, nothing. That's it. So in their minds, when you die, that's a wrap. There's no heaven, no hell, no eternity, no spiritual realm of any kind, no angels, no demons. There's nothing. You just die and that's it. Now that's important to know about Caiaphas because if your basic worldview is that everything ends when the last breath that you borrowed from God anyways leaves your body, then there's nothing else to live for but right now. And if you're in charge, you ain't giving that up. Not only are you not giving that up, you're going to do everything you can to pass that on to your family to remain in charge because that's all there is to live for. So Caiaphas, the high priest, has not entered into the story up until this point, and suddenly Jesus is calling people out of tombs. Well, that's a problem because John is not supposed to exist anymore. He can't come back from the dead. Where was he? It creates all kinds of tension. He can't have that. Now, the Pharisees don't have as big a problem with that. Politically, they're like, see, told you. (laughs) Right? They're like, whoo, we don't like Jesus, but we're winning this debate all of a sudden, right? So if you're in John chapter 11, you can go over to verse 45. Let me tell you a second story. So I'm... 17 years old, and uh, I had a big decision. I graduated high school, and uh, it was funny. I was in the perfect time when if you were brown and could take a test, you could go to school for free anywhere, right? Affirmative action had just, like, taken off, and they were giving out scholarships to any any Latin guy that could take a test like with like this much and I was a good test taker. So I had hit kind of the timing lottery on going to school for free and I was gifted at debating and arguing. Having a dad that I had to negotiate with like that was part of that. But I decided I had heard from the Lord and I was going to give the Lord at least one year of Bible college before I did anything else and just get that foundation in my life. My girlfriend, who was amazing and now is amazing as my wife, had uh, agreed we were both going to go off to Bible college for a year. So she went up ahead, had unloaded and stuff, and it was our turn to go. My dad 
he was a funny guy. He thought I was crazy, one, for having one girlfriend for a long time, because he's like, why would you do that? <laughs> Two, for going to Bible college, because why would you do that? And three, for paying to go to school when I could have gone for free a lot of different places. Why would you do that? But I'm getting out of the house and I'm not his problem anymore, so high five. <laughs> so we load up two cars. My mom, dad, brother are in the front car and I'm in my car with all my stuff. And we're driving north on I-5 and we're cruising along and we hit a little town called Red Bluff, which was a nothing town before you hit Redding, which used to be a nothing town and now it's a big town. And then as we're cruising along, I'm, I think cruise control at like 70 miles an hour on I-5 because my dad's driving up front. I can't go fast. Suddenly I hear a whack and my car begins doing this. A big rig had changed lanes into me and clipped the front edge of my car. After I think three rotations, my car slid into the middle of the freeway and there were these big bushy oleander trees and it went up like into the oleanders. Pieces of tree branches are poking through the car. My stuff's windows shattered. There's stuff all on the middle of the freeway. I'm miraculously okay. I don't know how I even got out of the car. Truck pulls over to check on me. I think he's hit me. I've been a Christian now for a few years, but I still got vocabulary issues. (laughs) So I begin unloading on this guy because I think he's hit me. I'm mostly concerned that my dad's in the front of us going to see that I wrecked the car and blame it on me. Tears and emotion are swelling up from adrenaline. The guy says, hey, I didn't hit you. I saw what happened, though, if you want me to make a report. I said, thank you. An ambulance comes and checks on me. I'm okay. We get a tow truck, and it drives us to the first real t- semi-real town at that time, Reading, and my car's totaled. It's gone, and there's a plastic tarp at this tow truck place, and all my worldly possessions are laying on this tarp because I'm getting ready to go to school. And My dad looks at me, kind of shrugs, like, see, this was a bad idea. We should just go home. And there's a moment because it makes sense. Car's gone. Don't know how that's going to solve. Don't know if any of my stuff is okay, not okay. Was really just trying to hear God and do this one thing. And clearly he must not want me to go since he knocked me right off the highway. And I say, you know what? I hear you, but let me think for a second. And I walk around this wrecking yard place and I just try to talk to God. And I don't get anything. (laughs) No word from the Lord, no expanding thing, no just power statement, just nothing. And I was like, thanks. And I remember my youth pastor's voice speaking into my life. And he said, listen, just remember it. He said, when you don't know what you're supposed to do next, you stay faithful to the last thing you know God said for sure. And you keep doing that until you get the next thing. And I said, okay. We borrowed a car from a family member so we could fit all our stuff in one car. And we drove up to Bible college, carless and shell-shocked. One year turned to five. I was a little slow in the middle. And that's kind of where that story went. So in John chapter 11, Lazarus has just come out of the grave and people are freaked out. How are we going to handle this? This is big news. This is new stuff. Verse 45 says, Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in him. 
This is a big deal. Faith is being shifted from the temple, from the structure of organized religion to the person of Jesus. It says, but some of them went to the Pharisees. We know who they are now. And they told them what Jesus had done. It says, then, listen to this, the chief priests, we haven't heard them, the whole story up till now, and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. Congress goes into session because dead guys are getting out of graves. The chief priest is present. There's 70 men, and this has created massive tension for them. So they ask a question. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. Now, this is amazing. These are folks that are not Jesus people. They are so not Jesus people within a matter of time, less than a week. They are gonna be trying and executing him based on hearsay. But they are not denying the miraculous power of Jesus. It just doesn't fit their controls or their narrative. The power of Jesus doesn't fit the religious expectations that they have. And so they are like, what are we doing here? Our control is at risk. What are we accomplishing? Verse 48, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? The greatest fear they have is that if they let him keep being Jesus, everyone's gonna believe. And the Romans will come, uh-oh, and they'll take away our toys. Both our place and our nation. The Romans will come and they'll take away our positional authority and they'll take away our right to structure how we wanna structure. Not only will we not be in charge, there won't be something for us to be in charge of. Can you imagine that? That would be awful. <laughs> then one of them named Caiaphas, and here he is, who was the high priest that year. Good old Caiaphas. How many years was he supposed to be high priest? One year. Yeah. He spoke up. He says, listen, Congress, you guys know nothing at all. <laughs> You don't realize that it's better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. Can you imagine the political clout that that statement would have? You can't imagine. It's totally appropriate. It doesn't matter if it's just or not. It doesn't matter if it's right or not. People are believing in him. And if people believe in him, they're gonna take away our stuff. And so the best way to keep our stuff is to just let this one guy perish. And everybody looks around and goes, yeah, I can, I can accept that. That sounds reasonable to me. <laughs> What's amazing is he doesn't care about the miracles. As a matter of fact, the miracles attack his positional authority. Now, the high priests and the Sadducees, they were the aristocrats. They were like the royal ruling class. 
Their position was important to them. Their wealth was connected to that. And so here's all of their influences connected to that. And if anything is on the wrong side of that, it's got to go. Verse 51. This is amazing, and it just throws everything into a place of irony that you can't even understand. He didn't say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he had prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for the nation, but for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. John puts this in here, and I got to tell you, the more time I spent looking at this, the more baffled I was. And here's the only conclusion I could find that made any sense. And I'm going to just be honest with you. I still don't fully get it. God is still God, no matter who's in charge of our political world, whoever sits on the throne. And God moves through people and speaks truth, even through people who are wicked from time to time. It's just he unwittingly, so John says, he basically unwittingly had prophesied earlier that Jesus would be really, really important. But now that's messing with his plans. And he's like, he's got to go. And here's the thing that happens to us. When something messes with our plans, it doesn't matter if it is rational or not. We lose our rationality. We lose track of the, oh, here it is. The last thing we knew that God said that was true. But now there's a wreck. Now there's a mess. Now there's tension. So we go to clean up the mess and we change the course of our plans away from the last thing we knew that God said was true because we want to be in control of this trauma, this messes, this mess, this deal. So here's a guy with all the authority, with all the influence, who has literally prophesied the truth already, saying, never mind the truth. This guy's getting too popular. He's messing with our influence. He's got to go. And look at verse 53. From that day on, they plotted to take his life. I had to stop right there for a second because Caiaphas is literally the person with access to the oldest copies of the law. You know where the thou shalt not murder stuff is? For 19 years, he was the closest to the oldest, to the original documents. He had to know that information and be in proximity to the truth. But he had no problem rationalizing, violating the truth of God. Come on now, because it didn't fit his narrative. It didn't fit his control of the situation. It didn't give him what he wanted. So he threw it out. Verse 55, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover. This is how we know this whole thing takes place about a week before the cross. Many went up from the country to Jerusalem for the ceremony clean, ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. It says, and they kept looking for Jesus and they stood in the temple area and they asked one another, what do you think? Isn't he coming to this feast at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees, that's funny that those two don't get together very often unless they're planning to do the wrong thing. The chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone found out where Jesus was, he should report it so that they might arrest him. <laughs> For these two guys to get together, these two people groups, come on, these, these Republicans and Democrats to agree on something. I had to say it, I'm sorry. I don't go political, I just love the irony of the parallel that we see here. For these two groups to get together and plan something is an epic moment in history. 
Jesus is bringing people together no matter what. They come together and say, we don't want this. They knew their power, their popularity, everything was at risk. Here's something I want you to catch. Sometimes when our position is at risk, when our authority, when our power, when our finances, when what we want is at risk, we partner with people we know we shouldn't partner with. We partner up with people that we know we shouldn't partner with. We get into arrangements. We make deals. Come on now. We give influence into our lives. We surrender pieces that require compromise that we know we shouldn't do. That's the danger of trying to be in control. We look at truth and we look at what we want and we say, well, I can't get, I don't want to go to truth. So I've lost the, come on, I've lost the authority that comes with partnering with God. But maybe Jeff can get me there. No. So we partner with something that we know we shouldn't partner with. We begin rationalizing behavior that we know we shouldn't do. We could just kill one guy. If we kill one guy, one guy. Yeah, he's popular, raising the dead, miracles are happening, whatever. If we kill that one guy, we get everything that we want gets to just keep being the thing that we want. We just got to kill one guy. Just got to make one compromise. Maybe your compromise isn't murder, hopefully. What's your compromise? That one thing. Come on, it would just make your whole life easier. You just got to agree to do the one thing you know you shouldn't do. Just check a box that you know is not true. Sign off on a thing that you know isn't best. Agree to something that you know you shouldn't have agreed to. Put yourself in a situation you know you shouldn't have put yourself into. Just make that one compromise. Just that one compromise and everything else that I want is there. See how we begin to rationalize that? They're in the midst of the greatest story in the history of time, of the human condition. And they're fighting to control something that they're going to lose anyways. <laughs> we all start doing those things. When control is threatened, we often team up with the wrong people. <laughs> we often team up with the wrong people, right? We start joining the mob and joining the crowd because we don't want that thing that isn't us, the thing we want. Think about this. How many of your worst decisions can you look back at right now and see, I never would have done that if I was thinking right? Think back on your worst decisions. Think back on the things in, in your time. You look back and you go, oh man, I shouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have done that. And you go, oh, I wasn't, I wasn't thinking right. I wasn't thinking right. <laughs> What's crazy is fear of control. Fear of losing control, it can lead us to terrible decision making. I want to be in control. I want to set my own destiny. We start making terrible decisions. We heard this a lot coming up this past year, but it's just true. The lesser of two evils is still evil. We're the folks that don't settle for the lesser of two evils. That's not what we do. In our decision-making, in our lives, we're the folks that take the consequences of standing up for truth, standing up for life. So 
Caiaphas has to deal with this threat. He's got to deal with this tension. How is he going to do it? What is his plan? His plan is creative. He realizes they're not allowed because he's not the king and Rome's in charge. They're not allowed to just kill people, but he's got to get someone killed. So he's got to get Jesus to say or do something that will allow Rome to kill him for him. Not only has he teamed up with the Pharisees, he has used his political influence, which has allowed him to remain as the high priest way longer than he should have, to pull on those connections. If you go to John chapter 18, you will see the story. I'm not going to take us through the whole story of Jesus before Pilate. Now, Pilate is the Roman kind of proconsul. He's in charge of the area around the temple, and he's, he's the law of the land who has the authority, come on now, to kill somebody. So Caiaphas sends the Jewish temple guard to arrest Jesus. We know the story. It happens at the garden. They arrest Jesus. What's funny is after they arrest Jesus, they take him to Annas, who is Caiaphas's father-in-law, who was the high priest for 10 years, because come on now, you know, the godfather's still in charge. Annas shows up, looks at what's going on, gives his approval, sends him to Caiaphas. Caiaphas sees Jesus and gets him to admit to being, come on now, the son of God or the king of the Jews. And that's all that he needs. Because once he has that accusation, he can make a charge of sedition. Because in Rome, no one's allowed to be in charge unless Rome says you can be in charge. So if you make a pronouncement like, I'm the king of this chair, I'm the king of this chair, Rome can come in and say, you ain't the king of nothing and kill you on the spot. A bigger statement to say, I'm a king of this whole people group the Jewish people, and deeper than that, I'm the son of God, ultimately, come on now, in authority over the whole world. So Caiaphas has this charge that he can utilize now, and he brings Jesus to Pilate. And you can read the story. It's fascinating. Because Pilate looks on, and he recognizes immediately, this some shady stuff. This guy's not doing anything that's causing Rome any problems. You guys deal with this on your own. And Caiaphas says, hey, we're not allowed to kill people and this guy needs to be killed. Pilate's like, why do you need to kill him? He goes, well, because he says he's the king. Pilate's like, seriously? He's like, are you the king? And Jesus is like, well, yeah, it, it is as you say. I'm that. Who gave you that? And he goes, don't worry about it. And he goes, okay, listen, I'm gonna paraphrase Jesus. I just need you to say something different than that so that you can go back and deal with it. And Jesus is like, I can't not, come on, I'm, the, I'm not the lesser of two evils. I'm gonna tell you the truth. So Pilate goes back to him and he's like, I'll beat him up for you. You know, that's fun. We'll whip him with some things. Like, you know, that's an entertaining thing for the crowd, but I'm, I don't need to kill him. And Caiaphas, because he's a politician, a shady one, he's been solidifying power for years, goes, oh, so someone who's a direct threat to Caesar, you're not going to actually execute Pilate? Come on. Now he starts playing him like a violin. And Pilate's like, well, since you put it in that terms, let's execute him. They get to the execution moment through the whole Passion Week. And there's a moment where it's been Passover. 
And Pilate's like, aha, we still get to pardon one guy because it's Passover. We get to pardon somebody. Why don't we pardon this guy who hasn't done anything? And we see the high priests again, Caiaphas leading the way, saying, no, give us the criminal Barabbas. Execute Jesus. Why? Because a murdering psychopath is no threat to their power. But a person speaking the truth in love, come on now, can topple a government. So Jesus goes to the cross. Caiaphas and his compatriots are leaning in, watching this. But I want you to catch something. Caiaphas and the high priests, they were members of the Sadducees. And within the next 40 years, the Sadducees don't exist anymore. In AD 70, Rome ticked off at Jewish rebellion, comes in and wipes out the temple. And we never hear of high priests or Sadducees ever again. I want you to catch something. The thing they were fighting so hard to protect was already slipping out of their hands. The thing they were fighting so hard to control, their position, their power, the thing they want, the person they want, the thing they want that was a rejection of God, whatever that is, it was already slipping away from them. How often, when you think back, Come on now, the big mistakes you made, the thing you were chasing. (laughs) There's no way you'd want it. It didn't last. Not only did it not last, it was diminishing in value while you were chasing it. It was pulling you farther and farther away from life. Will the thing you're fighting to control really even last? Will it even last? The Sadducees ceased to exist within a generation. Everything Caiaphas fought for was gone. The thing that he committed murder for was gone. The thing that he compromised for was gone within a generation. Everything was gone. I think sometimes we think, hey, if we can just hold on to this and control it, it'll be better in the long term. And we miss the thing that God was doing that was going to be eternal that was gonna last forever. Last story. So I'm about 20, 25 years old now. I've been youth pastoring for a while and my, uh, my dad is a alcoholic again and his alcoholism leads to a very uh, violent encounter with the police and he ends up shot. Uh, he dies in the uh, air vac, airlift on the way to the hospital and comes back uh, at the hospital uh, because of all of the stuff in his system. His system didn't go into shock like it should have. And so somehow the, the craziness of that kept him alive. And I'm talking to him and he's still recovering. He's just out of the ICU. And I'm a grown man now. He's been serving Jesus for a while. And I'm talking to him about his life, saying, Dad, I don't know where you think this is going to go, how this is going to work out. But there's hope that's bigger than all the other stuff you turn to. 
And why wouldn't you give that a chance? And I can see his processing. I could see his faith and said, why wouldn't you do that? Over the next about six months, as he recovers and heals up, for the first time in a long time, he starts going back to church. And him and him and my mom are going. And I get a call from my mom. And she says, hey, it's a big weekend. I said, what's going on? She says, your dad's getting baptized. I'm going to show you a picture. This is, uh, this is a crummy picture, but this is my old man taking the plunge, giving his heart back to Jesus. About six months after that, he'd be dead. He was uh, in rehab, and he had a heart attack trying to come off of all of the stuff that he had pumped his system full of for his whole 50 years of life. But I look back at all of the things that he tried to control and all of the things, come on now, all of the times when there was a moment where you can make a decision and say, what is the thing I'm going to go for? The thing I want to control my life the way I want to do it or the hope that I know that I have in Jesus? And all of the things, come on now, that we chase in this world in the place of Jesus fade away. All of those things get lost. Caiaphas should be one of the most important people in history. He was high priest for an extended, for the entire life of Jesus' ministry anyways, for all of Jesus' ministry. He was high priest. He could have been one of the most powerful partners in the kingdom of God ever. But he's just a footnote. Most of my life, you didn't even know his name before we walked into this conversation. Would you stand with me? So it's possible to be so close to the thing that God has for us and miss it. Why do we miss it? Well, because we're trying to control. We're trying to drive the boat. We're not, come on now, we're not convinced that he is who he says he is or that he'll do what he says he can do. I actually have this Bible in my hands, but I thought I'd, thought I'd grab this Bible. So when I went through my dad's things, I found his Bible. That's, his, that's my dad's Bible. And uh, I opened up to John 11 and 12. And he had this little card. This is a thing when, when you're in recovery for a long time, you find things to hold on to. Prayers and inspiration things. And so he, he had this card, and it's a prayer. And it just reads like this. It says, Father, I abandon myself into your hands. Do with me whatever you will. Whatever you may do, I thank you. I am ready for all. I accept all. Let only your will be done in me and in all your creatures. I wish no more than this, O Lord. Into your hands, I commend my soul. I offer it to you with all the love of my heart, for I love you, Lord. And so I need to give myself to surrender myself into your hands without reserve and with boundless confidence for you are my father. We're gonna close and I just wanna invite you this Easter season. What are the things that you're holding on to and trying to control? What are the things that might cause you to miss the will of God? What are the things that might cause you to miss the heart of God? 
maybe today would be the start of saying, I'm going to keep my eyes up here. God, it may cost me some things here in the natural, but those things are already going away. I want to move towards the things that are going to last forever. So God, whatever it is for us today, we just trust you. We give it to you. We love you. In Jesus' name, would you lift your voice with me?